ਮਹਾਬਲੀ ਰਣਜੀਤ ਸਿੰਘ ਹੋਇਆ ਪੈਦਾ ਨਾਲ ਜ਼ੋਰ ਦੇ ਮੁਲਖ ਹਿਲਾਏ ਗਿਆ ਮੁਲਤਾਨ ਕਸ਼ਮੀਰ ਪਿਸ਼ੌਰ ਚੰਬਾ ਜੰਮੂ ਕਾਂਗੜਾ ਕੋਟ ਨਿਵਾਏ ਗਿਆ ਤਿੱਬਤ ਦੇਸ਼ ਲੱਦਾਖ ਤੇ ਚੀਨ ਤੋੜੀ ਸਿੱਕਾ ਆਪਣੇ ਨਾਮ ਚਲਾਏ ਗਿਆ ਸ਼ਾਹ ਮੁਹੰਮਦਾ ਜਾਨ 50 ਵਰਸਾਂ ਹੱਛਾ ਰਜ ਕੇ ਰਾਜ ਕਮਾਏ ਗਿਆ came the warrior brave ranjit singh with his might the land would shake multan kashmir peshawar chamba kangra jammu coat he take humbled china tibet ladakh in his name coins he would make 50 years o shah muhammad a glorious reign left in his wake In 2020, the BBC World Histories magazine conducted a poll asking its readers to vote for the greatest leader the world had ever known. A panel of eminent historians put together a list of great leaders that included names such as Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, Queen Elizabeth I, Joan of Arc, the Emperor Akbar, and Alfred the Great. When the results of the poll were announced, at the top of the list sat Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Not exactly a household name in the West. I'm Ben Gutman and I would like to welcome you to The Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire. A podcast which will tell the glorious tale of this little-known monarch and his empire. I invite you to join me on a journey with writer-narrator Sarpreet Singh into a world of romance, intrigue, and high drama, as well as tragedy that can only be called Shakespearean. There we will encounter the young scion of a fiefdom in the Sikh homeland, Punjab, who on the strength of his valor, spurred on by a woman equipped with Machiavellian foresight, rose to dizzying heights of power. We will marvel at how, starting with a small kingdom, he carved out a mighty empire, making him the only ruler on the Indian subcontinent who could check the relentless advance of the British East India Company. We will meet the colorful characters who populated his egalitarian court. Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs, as well as Frenchmen, Italians, Germans, Hungarians and Americans, all of whom converged upon the Punjab to make their fortunes in the service of the brilliant Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Our tale begins in the year 1774. When the mighty Mughal Empire, which had ruled the Indian subcontinent for more than 200 years, had crumbled, leaving the Punjab in chaos. Ahmad Shah Abdali, the ruler of Afghanistan and the scourge of the Sikhs, who had wrested the Punjab from the Mughals, had also passed away recently. The Sikhs, who were organized into 12 bands known as the Missals, had stepped into the power vacuum and had become the de facto rulers of the Punjab. man looked fondly at the handsome young man riding beside him resplendent 
in his wedding finery. Just 18, broad-shouldered and already battle-scarred, the young man sat in the saddle with accustomed ease, nudging his magnificent stallion forward with the faintest touch of his heels, his hands holding the reins lightly. Your kalgi makes you look like a young king, Mahasingh, said the old man with an indulgent smile, his eyes drawn to the magnificent aigrette that adorned his protege's turban. It's a pity that Charat Singh is not here. He would have been so proud today. A shadow flitted across the young man's face at the mention of his father, and he nodded as his eyes met the older man's. Jasing Kanaya was an old man, but he sat absolutely erect in his saddle with an unmistakably warlike bearing. The heavy sword that swung at his side would have been challenging even for a much younger man to wield, but it continued to serve the grizzled warrior well. Mahasingh addressed the older man as Tayaji, but in age he would have been closer to his grandfather rather than his father. The bridegroom's procession was long and impressive. At its head rode fifty of the finest Shukarchekia horsemen, their matchlocks slung behind their backs. Mahasingh Shukarchekia, the bridegroom, followed with the Kanhiya patriarch Jasing by his side. They were ringed by two dozen or so warriors, all mounted on handsome horses, flowers and ribbons braided through the horses' tails to mark the festive occasion. Even though the men were dressed in their finest clothes, they were all heavily armed, each carrying a musket, a sword, and an assortment of daggers. In the ranks of the warriors rode some of the most prominent Kanhiya chiefs, shoulder to shoulder with Mahasingh's kinsmen and commanders. Gurbak Singh, the extremely handsome and dashing son of Jasing, was just behind his father, and to his left, right behind the bridegroom, rode Hakikat Singh, one of the most formidable sardars in the Kanhiya ranks, and one of his father's strongest allies. Behind the knot of warriors came a caravan of gaily decorated bullock carts carrying the Shukarchakya and Kanhiya women. In the first cart, a coveted position unaffected by the dust raised by the rest of the caravan, sat Maidesa, Mahasingh's mother and the matriarch of the Shukarchakya clan, surrounded by relatives and her maids. It was a joyous day for sure, but she could not help thinking of her late husband, Charat Singh Shukarchakya, who had been one of the leading sardars in the entire Sikh Panth. Ballads about whose exploits were still sung by bards all over the Punjab to that day. The second cart echoed with the sounds of giggling and occasional peals of laughter. Sadakor, the young bride of Gurbak Singh, chattered incessantly with her companions, who were all around her age. Unlike Mai Desa's cart, which was draped with Kashmiri shawls the color of dust, Sadakor's was decorated gaily with richly embroidered fulkaris. 
the hands and feet of all the girls, prominent members of the bridegroom's party, were adorned with intricate patterns of henna, which had been applied when they had halted a night before, a short distance from Padrachan, their destination, where the wedding was to take place. Giggling the loudest were her favorite attendants, the twins Mankor and Tankor, who, like always, were dressed in identical clothes, relishing the prospect of confusing all the new people they were about to meet at the wedding. They both kept parting the heavy drapes that were designed to keep the dust out of the cart and peeking out, sometimes craning their necks and then retreating sharply whenever they found curious male eyes on them. Stop it, you silly girls, said Sadakor, the smile on her face softening the rebuke. If the grandmas in the front carriage see you doing that, we will all get in trouble. And then her curiosity got the better of her, and she asked, What are you giggling about anyway? Who are you staring at? The Shukarchakia boy looks so handsome today, said Mankor. Yes, yes, echoed her twin. Usually he looks more like a stable boy, she tittered. But look at him today. Fancy clothes? That plume on his turban? Mano, don't you think he looks even more dashing than Gurbakshpaji? Said Tankor saucily, looking at Sadakor out of the corner of her eye. Sadakor snorted and tossed her head. There was no Sikh Sardar who was more dashing than her husband. Her father-in-law, Sardar Jaisingh Kanahiya, himself had been fabled for his good looks, and she had heard that when he was a lad he had been compared with the Hindu god Krishna, who was renowned for his beauty. The very name that was given to him, which had also become the name by which his clan was known, evoked the dusky god. If anything, his son, her beloved husband Gurbak Singh, was even more handsome than his father, and not a bit less brave and dashing. The twins were just teasing her, and she knew it. Thinking about her father-in-law sent Sadakor into a reverie. There is no girl more fortunate than I am in this land, she said to herself. Her father had been a brave warrior, as her grandfather had been, but they were not men of significant renown. What were the odds that she would be picked by Sardar Jaisen Kanhiya as the bride for his son and heir? The Kanhiya missile which her father-in-law headed was at the zenith of its glory. The six Sardars were a fiercely independent lot and recognized no master, but Jaisen Kanhiya was as close to being paramount among them as was possible. Sardar Jassasing Aluwalia was perhaps the only one who could rival him in prestige. One day, everything that the Kanhiyas owned, the lands, the forts, the immense riches and the armies, would belong to her husband. He would practically be a king, and she, Sadakor, his queen. She could not have imagined a future as bright as this, when she had been a child. Sadakor was jolted out of her daydreaming as the cart abruptly came to a halt, 
prompting the twins to part the drapes and look out curiously, staying discreetly out of sight behind them, Sadakor craned her neck to see what was going on. The wedding party had halted at what appeared to be the outskirts of a prosperous-looking village. The road was curved, and Sadakor could see the well-kept houses in the village, with smoke from cooking fires rising to the sky. The Sardars at the head of the wedding party sat erect in their saddles, the pennants attached to the lances of the soldiers behind them fluttering gaily in the breeze. On the grassy plain that lay between them and the village was a knot of men, dressed in festive clothes, all of them sporting pink turbans on their heads. In the rear, mounted on handsome steeds, were two rows of fierce-looking cavalrymen, their unsheathed swords sparkling in the sun. In the very front stood a mountain of a man with imposing whiskers and a long salt-and-pepper beard, his fine robes adorned with pearls and precious stones. In his hands he held a length of rose-colored silk, and Sadakor noticed that somewhat at odds with his finery, his feet were bare. The Sardars in the wedding party, along with Mahasingh and his kinsmen, dismounted and formed a phalanx behind Sardar Jansingh Kanhaya, who started to walk solemnly towards a group of men on the grassy plain. Raja Gajpat Singh of Jind, briskly for a man of his girth, walked barefoot towards the approaching Sardars, bowing respectfully and placing the rose-coloured scarf around the neck of the Kanhiya Sardar, words of welcome on his lips. Sardar Jansing Kanhiya, a huge smile on his face, enveloped Raja Gajpat Singh in a bare hug as a detachment of drummers who had been hidden behind the cavalry started to pound on their kettle drums. The two parties mingled, Sardars from both sides joyously embracing comrades of campaigns past as they made their way to the village with the caravan of carts following. The celebrations lasted for several days, and the groom and his entourage enjoyed the lavish hospitality of Raja Gajpat Singh. The bride, Rajkor, at sixteen, was somewhat older than most brides were in those days, and if truth be told, a little plain. But my Desa was well satisfied with the match. Her son, while a brave warrior, was not particularly handsome himself, and besides, what really mattered was his bride's pedigree and her father's power and influence. She was convinced that if Sardar Charat Singh Shukarchakya had been alive, he would have been pleased with the match as well. Raja Gajpat Singh's fortunes were in the ascendant. He was a clever man who had successfully managed to get his title as the Raja of Jind confirmed by the Mughal court in Delhi. It was an alliance that was surely going to bring prestige to the Shukarchakya clan. She said a silent prayer for Sardar Jaisingh Kanhiya 
and thanked the guru for blessing her son with such a powerful and sagacious mentor. The wily Kanhiya chief had carved out a formidable fiefdom for himself, starting with practically nothing, and his matrimonial diplomacy was no less impressive than his valor. He had forged an alliance with the formidable Fulkian clan, which dominated the lands across the Sutlej River by arranging his daughter Sahibkor's wedding with Raja Amar Singh of Patiala. Now, by arranging this match between his protege Maha Singh, who was practically his foster son, and Raj Kaur, the daughter of Raja Amar Singh's kinsman, Raja Gajpat Singh, he had further cemented his alliance with the Fulkiyas. Sadakor, with her young attendants, was the toast of the wedding, as she played an important role in the ceremonies and celebrations, completely eclipsing the Shukarchakya women. Mai Desa, in her widowhood, had become somewhat aloof and retiring, and she was content to let the young daughter-in-law of her son's mentor take center stage. The handsome Gurbak Singh and his vivacious and beautiful wife were the cynosure of every eye at the wedding, prompting Thankor and Mankor to mutter darkly about the evil eye. Sadakor gaily laughed their concerns away, secretly pleased that she and her husband were the ones who attracted the most attention at the wedding, even more than the bridegroom and his somewhat homely wife. The Queen Mother, Rani Chandrika Devi, had decreed that the period of mourning in Tira Sajanpur was over and that the coronation could take place. Thirteen days had passed since the demise of her husband, Raja Teigchand, who had ruled barely for a year after succeeding his legendary father, the late Raja Kamandachand, as the monarch of Kangra. The coronation, which took place in the Rainavas palace, was a simple, low-key affair out of respect for the recently departed king. The royal Purohit had chanted the appropriate mantras, invoked the blessing of the various family deities, and had performed the rituals necessary to honour the illustrious clan of Katoch kings, Raja Sansarchan's ancestors, who had ruled the land for more than a thousand years. The newly crowned king was a pallid youth, who sat uneasily on the wide throne of his legendary grandfather, his forehead daubed in saffron, looking a little comical in the large white turban that adorned his head, and swimming in the opulent silken robes that the Queen Mother had insisted he wear for the occasion. He had the sharp nose of the Katoch clan, but his good looks were marred by a weak and receding chin. His bright eyes, which seemed to carefully size up each courtier that stepped up with the ceremonial nazar to pay his respects, 
were his grandfather's. The coronation was over, and all the nobles and attendants had left. Since Archan sat in his mother's chamber in Rhinebas, surrounded by a gaggle of maids, all eager to cater to the young king's every whim, much to his annoyance and the queen's amusement. "'You are their king,' she said. "'It is their sacred duty to serve you.' Seeing that the boy was starting to get very irritated, she clapped her hands, and almost magically all the women disappeared, leaving them alone in the sumptuously appointed chamber. "'What is it, my son?' the queen mother asked, her eyes drawn to her son's furrowed brow. "'You should be happy today. This is an auspicious day, for your glorious reign has begun. Savor it. This day will never come back again.' She continued, seeing that the boy's dark mood would not lift. "'What is the matter? Are you thinking about your father? It does not behoove the king of Kangra to let his shoulders droop in this manner. Pull yourself together, son. You are the inheritor of the most distinguished royal legacy in the land. Your forefathers were descended from the gods themselves.' The blood of Chandravanshi Rajputs runs through your veins. Pull yourself together. Your demeanor discredits the glory of your ancestors, my son. The boy regarded his mother balefully and spoke, his words belying his youth and inexperience. What is this glory that you are referring to, mother? Do you not see what we have been reduced to? My ancestors might have been great kings, but I am no better than a petty chief. The king of Kangra I am called. My grandfather was a great man, but even he could not capture the fort of our ancestors in his lifetime. This royalty is a facade, mother. We are nothing. All this strutting is just a charade, the lad said bitterly. The queen mother looked stricken at first, but then she regarded her son with pride. You are a better man already than your father ever was, my son. I see Raja Gamandachand in you. Yes, be satisfied, but do not be bitter. Fashion a weapon out of your ambition and your dissatisfaction. Do what your grandfather was unable to. Win back the fort of Kangra and restore the glory of the Katoch dynasty. And don't stop at Kangra. Sirmor, Nadon, Jasrota, Guler, every hill kingdom should pay tribute to you. Show the world the power of the blood that runs in your veins. The boy looked at his mother. But how, mother? We are weak. Our army is small. How will I succeed when a mighty warrior like my grandfather failed? Your expectations are absurd, mother. We need to accept our fate, and we need to stop living in the past. The queen mother looked at the young king, fury in her eyes. You will not give up, Sansar Chand. I will not let you. She clapped lightly, and her chief attendant appeared, into whose ear she whispered. The woman nodded and came back with an ornately decorated chest, which she placed before the queen mother. This is the wealth that came with me as my dowry when I became a Katochan bride. 
It is yours, my son. Use it well. There are bands of brigands that roam the plains, looking for a master who will lead them to plunder and wealth. Some are Rohilla Pratans, others are Sikhs. You will take this wealth, and you will build an army with it. You will take Kangra and the rest of the hills, and you will not stop there. You will take Hushyarpur and Batala and Jalandhar. You will win the respect of the Afghans and the Mughals. You will be faithful to your Chandravanshi blood. I demand it. The young king looked at his mother with an expression that was equal parts awe, fear, and exuberance. No words came out of his mouth. He just nodded and touched his mother's feet. Sardar Jaising sat on a cot in the upper floor of the Kanaya Bunga, enjoying the breeze that wafted through his Spartan quarters. He could never suppress a feeling of excitement and gratitude when he looked out of the narrow windows to gaze upon the Sri Harmandar Sahib. Vaheguru has been kind to me, he would say to himself whenever he entered the tower, an enduring testimonial to the prominence of the Kanhaya clan. Every Sardar wanted a tower in the inner promenade surrounding the Golden Temple, but space there was coveted. Pride of place was occupied by the Akal Bunga of Guru Hargobind, and there was one dedicated to the Sahibzade, the sons of Guru Gobind Singh. The Nakai Sardars, the Shukar Chakiyas, the Aluvalias, and the Sardars of the Malwa had their towers too, as did several other prominent chiefs, as well as powerful Mahants, who exercised control over Gurdwaras and had large followings. The Singhpuriya Banga of the legendary Nawab Kapoor Singh, his own mentor who had himself initiated the Kanaya chief, into the ranks of the Khalsa always prompted him to bow his head in reverence when he passed it. The Shaheed Bunga of the legendary Baba Deep Singh also aroused feelings of deep respect in his heart. The Bunga of Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya and his clan, however, aroused very different sentiments every time he walked past it. His mind drifted back to times that seemed simpler when Nawab Kapoor Singh held sway over the Sikh warriors of the Dal Khalsa. Jai Singh Kanaya, Jassa Singh Aluwalia, Charath Singh Shukar Chakya, Hari Singh Pangi, and Jassa Singh Ramgadiya, each the chief of a fearless band of fighting men, had been the brightest young stars in the Khalsa firmament. Undoubtedly, there had been rivalry between them, but it paled into insignificance before their fierce camaraderie as they came together again and again without reserve to take on the might of Mughal governors such as Zakaria Khan and Mir Mannu and their minions like Divan Lakhpatrai and his brother Jaspatrai. Together, 
They had fought Amatcha Abdali and his hordes, harrying him, plundering his baggage train, and melting away with mocking laughter on their lips when the Afghans had tried to engage them head to head. The chiefs had exuberantly participated in many adventures when they had been the swashbuckling leaders of the Taruna Dal, the younger of the two divisions of the Dal Khalsa. Sardar Jaising Kanhiya smiled fondly as he recalled their audacious exploits from the days when their beards had been jet black. His thoughts turned to an expedition that he had led jointly with Sardar Hari Singh Pangi and Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya against the Pathan rulers of Kasur. Against heavy odds, the Sikhs had taken the well-fortified city, killing Kamaluddin Khan and Hassan Khan and forcing Alif Khan to flee. Ironically, the seeds of the conflict between Sardar Jaising Kanaya and Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya had been sown by this great victory. The sack of Kasur had yielded enormous plunder, but there were whisperings that Jassa Singh's brother Mali Singh had stashed away a significant portion, cheating Jassing and the other Sardars of their fair share. The divisions only deepened after both Sardars went from strength to strength, constantly expanding the territories they controlled. The Ramgadiya star in particular had been in the ascendant, the brave and ruthless Jassa Singh Ramgadiya, after establishing a larger-than-life reputation through his battles with the Afghan commanders Jahan Khan and Zan Khan, had been steadily acquiring territory in the Jalandar Dwab as well as in the Shivalik Hills between the Ravi and the Bias rivers. The rich towns of Batala and Kalanor belonged to him, as did Husharpur, and the Hindu Rajas who ruled Kangra, Haripur, Jaswan and Datarpur paid tribute to him. Among them had been Raja Gamandchand, the proud and ambitious Katoch ruler of Kangra. Irritated by the perfidy of Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya and his brother during the sack of Kasur, Sardar Jaising Kanhiya had started to see him as a rival and felt great unease at his territorial expansion and the swelling of his ranks, which had exceeded 10,000 horse. Besides, parts of Batala, which he considered his backyard, were under the control of the Ramgadiyas, which was a bitter pill to swallow. Eager to build the fortunes of his own clan, Jaising had tried to seize an opportunity to strike when Raja Gamandchand had had a falling out with his overlord, the combined forces of Sardar Jaising and Raja Gamandchand took the field against Jassa Singh Ramgadiya, but they were defeated and suffered great humiliation when their camps were plundered. A low-grade conflict continued between the Kanaya Katoch alliance and the Ramgadiyas, who managed to hang on to the hill territories, but their efforts to collect revenue were somewhat impaired, much to their annoyance. Sardar Jaising Kanhiya was jolted out of his reverie by a shadow that he saw from the corner of his eye. He turned around, an oath bubbling on his lips, for he had asked his guards that he not be disturbed, but his frown turned into a smile, 
as he beheld his beloved son and heir, Gurbak Singh, followed by his wife, Sadakor, who stood a few paces behind her husband, her head bowed respectfully. The patriarch smiled as his son and daughter-in-law approached and bent down low to touch his feet. He placed his hands on both their heads in blessing and stood up. Is it done, Gurbak Singh? he asked his son, his voice betraying the slightest hint of anxiety. The young man smiled broadly. It is done, Bapuji. The sheds have been completed, and the merchants will start setting up this afternoon. A lump of jaggery has been collected from each merchant, and lads have been assigned to patrol the market. Sadar Jaising Kanheya nodded approvingly. You and Hakikat Singh have done well, my son. Katara Kanheya will become the most prosperous market in Amritsar, and our family will reap its benefits for generations to come. He turned to his daughter-in-law and pulled out a gold coin from a pouch. Go to the Sri Harmandar Sahib child and make an offering. The Guru has been kind to us. Sadakor nodded dutifully and left, clutching the coin in her hand. January 1775, the king of Afghanistan was in Peshawar, where he usually spent his winters and the streets were filled with soldiers. In the northwest corner of the city stood the mighty edifice known as Bala Hisar, built hundreds of years earlier, which had been so named and claimed by the mighty Amitya Abdali when he took the city. On the throne of Afghanistan sat Taimur Shah, the second son of the late Amitya Abdali, who had declared his son the heir apparent a few months before his death, without consulting the tribal elders or his important advisers. Taimur Shah's older brother Suleiman Mirza, the governor of Kandahar, had tried to assert his right to succeed Amitya Abdali with the support of some of the king's senior-most advisers, including the Grand Vizier or Prime Minister Shah Wali Khan and Sadar Jahan Khan, who was the supreme military commander and also the prince's father-in-law. Tamur Shah, Shah Wali Khan and Sadar Jahan Khan were all veterans of Amitya Abdali's Indian campaigns and Tamur Shah had also been the governor of Lahore briefly. Very different from his late father, who had been a military genius and had been a soldier throughout his life, Temur Shah had been living a life of laziness and opulence in Herat, where he had been appointed governor. Sardar Jahan Khan and Shah Wali Khan had led a rebellion against Temur Shah in support of Suleiman Mirza, but support for the older prince had collapsed and he had fled to India. The two elder statesmen had gone to Tehmur Shah's camp to beg for forgiveness, but piqued by their support for his older brother, 
he had denied them an audience and had them executed along with their sons and supporters. Suspicious of the chiefs of his own clan, the Sadozais, and the tribe of Dranis or the Abdalis that they came from, Taimur Shah decided to leave Kandahar, his father's capital, which was dominated by the Dranis, and moved his court to Kabul, where he had begun to recruit men from other tribes, such as Tajiks, Hazaras, and Gizlais, into his army in order to free himself from his dependence on the Dranis. One of Amacha Abdali's strongest allies had been Haji Jamal Khan of the rival Baraksai tribe, who had served the king as vizier and had supported his ascension in return for a promise that the office of vizier would remain in his family. In order to honor his late father's agreement with the Baraksais, Taimur Shah had married a daughter of Haji Jamal Khan's and after his death had appointed her brother Bende Khan as the new vizier. Most of the other important offices, however, had been given to men who were considered outsiders by Tamur Shah's own Sadozai clan, which had continued to challenge him even after he moved his capital from Kandahar to Kabul. A couple of years earlier, Janda Singh and Ganda Singh, the leaders of the Bhangi missile, had captured Multan, which was part of the Afghan empire, Tamur Shah had responded to the pleas of Shuja Khan, the former governor, by sending one of his generals, Madad Khan Shakzai, to recover Multan from the Sikhs. He had even joined the campaign personally towards the end of 1774, but having got used to the comforts of court, he abandoned it and returned to the Bala Hisar in Peshawar. The court was in session and Tamur Shah sat on a large throne in the royal pavilion, a grand elevated structure with multiple arches. The court was large and oblong, with high walls painted with figures of cypress trees. In the center was a tank of water with multiple fountains. The walls on the side had three rows of the royal guard in uniform, with iron-heeled boots that made them sound like charging cavalry each time they marched. Arranged around the court were the officers of the state, the most important standing closest to the king. The important courtiers were dressed in opulent robes, their turbans ornamented and plumed. Behind them could be seen tribal chiefs from all over the kingdom, and further back were the attendants of the royal household in a variety of red or black caps that identified them as officers. The king was magnificently dressed, his robe and his crown ornamented with dazzling jewels. At the foot of his throne, which towered above them, stood a detachment of eunuchs, who stood silently, their eyes scanning the courtiers, the guards, the officials, and the visitors, constantly. Seated in the royal pavilion, dressed as resplendently as their father, were Mahmud Mirza, the ten-year-old son of Tamur Shah, who two years earlier had been appointed the governor of Herat, and his younger half-brother Shah Zaman. Somewhere in the rear of the court, 
A drum was beaten, but the courtiers paid scant attention, and all eyes remained on the royal pavilion. Two extremely tall royal guards marched into the court, firmly holding a man dressed in fine robes, and then, as soon as they entered the hall, they broke into a trot, making their hapless captive clutch at his bobbing turban to prevent it from falling. After running a short distance, they came to a halt, and the king's imam, a distinguished-looking older man with a long beard dressed in spotless white, came up to him and instructed him. The new ambassador from Samarkand to the court of Tamur Shah, in a sonorous voice, said a prayer, invoking Allah's blessings for the king at the conclusion of which the guards trotted again, the diplomats still secured in their iron grips. After a second prayer, a princely hillat, or robe of honor, was conferred upon the ambassador, and he was dismissed. At the second drumbeat, a tall, fierce-looking man of military bearing was escorted into the court, and after he had presented a nazar or offering to the monarch, he bowed low and was instructed to approach the royal pavilion. Are you ready, Ursula Khan? asked the king imperiously. I am, your majesty, answered the man. If you permit me, I shall march with 4,000 musketeers immediately to Multan and reinforce Shuja Khan. The king nodded, pleased, as his vassal continued. My men request the honor of an audience, your majesty, he said. If you inspect them as they parade and display their marksmanship, it will fire them up and get them ready for battle with the sick infidels. So be it, said Tamur Shah, and a firman was issued, authorizing Arsala Khan to bring his battalions into the Bala Hisar to be inspected by the king. Tamur Shah had no inkling of the treachery that was afoot. In Peshawar lived a peer or holy man, Hazrat Mia Omar Baba of Chamkani, who had bestowed the title Durre Duran or Pearl of Pearls upon his father and had blessed his jihad against the Sikhs. Tamur Shah, who was a libertine and enjoyed his wine in contravention of Islamic law, was disinclined to honor him and had not even gone to his compound to offer his respects. Omar Baba persuaded Fazallah Khan, a tribal chief, to depose the king, who in turn had convinced Arsala Khan, who had been the governor of Sindh, to join the plot. Amachad Durrani's chief eunuch, Yahud Khan, was also persuaded to join the plotters. The royal command to ride to the relief of Shuja Khan in Multan presented a great opportunity, which Arsala Khan decided to seize by obtaining permission for his musketeers to enter Bala Hisar. One afternoon, as the king was taking a nap, 2,500 heavily armed tribesmen under the command of Arsala Khan brazenly marched into Bala Hisar on strength of the king's firman. While Arsala Khan and his men distracted the guards at the parade ground, Fazallah Khan and Yaqud Khan 
tried to storm the chamber where Temur Shah was resting, the king, whose nap had been disturbed by the clamor, realized what was happening and summoned his Persian guard, known as the Kizalbash, who managed to capture Fazallah Khan, his son, and Yakut Khan. While Arsala Khan managed to escape, the other conspirators were summarily executed. Order had been restored in the fort, and the king was in his private chambers, huddled with his closest advisers. The two young princes were in attendance as well. It was clear that Arsala Khan, whose act of treachery had left the whole court speechless, was a dangerous foe who could not be ignored. On this, the council was unanimous, but a thorny problem presented itself. Arsala Khan had gone into hiding in his mountain fort at Hastanagar, from where it would be difficult to dislodge him. The Prince Mahmud Mirza was the one who came up with a solution. Offer him a pardon, father, the prince said. Swear on the Quran, if you need to, that his life will be spared and summon him. Once he is here, deal with him as you please. His younger brother spoke a little hesitatingly, for unlike Mahmud Mirza, Shah Zaman had neither been on any campaigns nor had he ever been a part of the royal council before. That would be dishonorable, brother, he said. If Baba swears on the Quran that Arsala Khan will not be harmed, then he cannot be harmed. All eyes were on the king's face. The son of Ahmad Shah Abdali was a refined, courtly man with sophisticated tastes. He was as aware as the courtiers that he really didn't live up to the standards that his father, the founder of their dynasty, had set. He looked at his sons and smiled. Together, he said, you would make your grandfather proud. You, Mahmud Mirza, are blessed with his wisdom, and you, Shah Zaman, have inherited his compassion and his conscience. I wonder which one of them would make the better king after I'm gone, he asked himself. An envoy was sent to Arsala Khan, bearing a Quran, with a letter from the king promising clemency and commanding him to appear at court. When Arsala Khan arrived in Peshawar, he was arrested and beheaded. Sadar Jaisen Kanhiya looked at his young visitor as if trying to take his measure, and while he had a benign, almost avuncular expression on his face, he was wondering if the young man was like his late father, whom he had despised, or his late grandfather, who he had grudgingly admired. It was ostensibly a social visit, for Raja Sansarchan, the newly crowned King of Kangra, had journeyed to Amritsar with his mother and his wife Rani Prasanna Devi to pay their respects at the Sri Harbandar Sahib. Sadakor had taken the young queen under her wing and the women from Kangra had spent the entire day sampling the delights of the bazaars of Amritsar. The women had retired 
and Sardar Jai Singh was in his quarters at the Kanhaya Bunga talking to Sansar Chand. The only other person in the room was Gurbaksh Singh, all the other attendants and warriors having been dismissed because of the sensitive nature of the conversation. It can be done, Sardar Jai Singh Ji, said Sansar Chand earnestly. Saif Ali Khan is dead, and the court in Delhi is not going to respond if you help me take back the Kangra fort, which, as you know, is my birthright. Please help me, and in return, I will help you break Jassa Singh Ramgadiya's hold over the hill kingdoms. Both of us have a score to settle with him. His missile was flourishing, and Sardar Jaisen Kanhaya was not overly keen on getting embroiled in a new conflict, but the young king's offer was tempting. The defeat that Jassa Singh Ramgadiya had handed him still rankled, and there was no doubt that the passing of the Mughal overlord of Kangra represented an opportunity. Your grandfather would have been proud of you, Raja Sansar Chand, he told the beaming young man. The brave warriors of the Kanhaya missile will ride with you under Gurbak Singh's command. Gurbak Singh Kanhaya marched north with a detachment of cavalry intent on restoring Kangra Fort to Sansar Chand and expelling the Ramgadiyas from the hills. Before engaging Jeevan Khan, the son of Saif Ali Khan in battle, the young chief decided to go on a reconnaissance mission to gauge the strength of the fortifications. He was much impressed by what he saw. The fort, perched on the summit of a tall mountain, looked truly formidable, with its twenty-three bastions. It stood on a narrow strip of land where the Manji and the Bangaga rivers met. Its thick walls, which seemed to extend for at least two miles, looked impregnable, but the real strength of the fort lay in the cliffs which overhung the Bangaga, towering to a height of several hundred feet. The only way to access the fort was the road on a narrow ridge that led from the town, crossing a deep ditch that had been carved out of the ridge at the foot of the walls of the fort. One look at the fort was enough to tell Gurbak Singh why all of Ghamandchand and Sansarchand's efforts to capture it had been a failure. Only a fool would lay siege to Kangra Fort, he said to himself. Recalling the old saying that whoever holds Kangra Fort holds the hills, he decided to take a different approach and sent an envoy to Jeevan Khan, who graciously invited him to visit the fort. He passed through the first gate or fatak, guarded by a contingent of Mughal warriors, and passed through the Ahini Darwaza, covered with plates of iron, and the Amiri Darwaza, followed by the Jahangiri Gate, and then the Andheri Gate, which led to a long, vaulted passage. Passing through the Darshani Darwaza, he entered a courtyard where stood several stone temples dedicated to Hindu and Jain deities, the Mehloka Darwaza led to the palace, which was built at the highest point on the hill. There he met with Jeevan Khan. The young Kanhaya chief managed to convince Jeevan Khan that resistance was futile. However, 
instead of turning the fort over to Sansarchand, Gurbak Singh decided to keep it for the Kanhiya missile. A frustrated Sansarchand swore that he would kill himself before ever trusting a Sikh chief again. Sardar Jaising Kanhiya was much pleased with his son's successful capture of Kangra, which brought great prestige to their missile. His ally, Hakikat Singh, had already established control over the kings of Jasarota, Basholi, and Jammu, and with the capture of Kangra Fort, other kings and chiefs in the hills sought alliances with him as well. The consequent weakening of Jasasing Ramgriya's hold on the hills was a particular source of satisfaction for the Kanhiya patriarch. The beleaguered Jasasing Ramgriya managed to make matters worse for himself. There had already been bad blood between the Ramgriya chief and Jasasing Aluwalia, who was paramount among the Sikh chiefs. In 1775, Jasasing Ramgariya's brothers, Kaushal Singh, Mali Singh, and Tara Singh, attacked Jasasing Aluwalia, who had been out hunting near Gurdaspur, and captured him. Even though the chivalry that existed between rival Sikh chiefs asserted itself, and Jasasing Ramgariya honored Jasasing Aluwalia with a killat and sent him back in a palanquin, the humiliation of the capture created great determination in the mind of the Aluwalia chief to extract vengeance. He decided to seek allies to take on the Ramgariyas and also reached out to the Bhangis who pledged support. Further, he found a willing ally in Sadar Jasing Kanhiya who had been eyeing several of Jasa Singh Ramgariya's territories beyond the hill kingdoms. The stage was set for a great confrontation between the missiles. Rebellion of Omar Baba, Faisallah Khan, Yaqud Khan, and Arsala Khan ended, but Taimur Shah was not a man at peace. Chiefs all over the kingdom, aware that he was not as powerful as his late father, constantly tested him, as a result of which he had to deal with one rebellion after another. His territories across the Indus were of particular concern for the Sikhs had been going from strength to strength and increasingly exerting control over his possessions. A visitor from Multan arrived at Tamur Shah's court in Kabul. It was Muzaffar Khan, the dashing young son of Shuja Khan Sadozai, a kinsman and former governor of Multan, Muzaffar Khan came bearing a petition from his father who asked for the king's support in ousting the Sikhs from Multan. After the king had recalled his general, Madad Khan Ishakzai, the Sikhs had reasserted their control over the city and Bhangi chief Ganda Singh had installed Divan Singh Chachowalia as the Kiladar or commander of Multan. Intent on fighting more important rebellions, 
Taimur Shah heard the petition and dismissed Muzaffar Khan with a purse of 5,000 rupees. A dissatisfied Shuja Khan travelled to Kabul himself and for his efforts was formally invested with the title of the Nawab of Multan. The king commanded the Nawab of Bahawalpur, also his vassal, to attack Multan to dislodge the Sikhs and sent Madad Khan Ishaqzai with an army of 3,000 men. The combined force took the city and laid siege to the fort, where Divan Singh held out for 18 days until Ganda Singh Pangi arrived with reinforcements and broke the siege. Both Muzaffar Khan and the Nawab of Bahawalpur fled with the Bhangis in hot pursuit. Another rebellion prompted Taimur Shah to recall Madad Khan yet again, and the coalition against the Sikhs crumbled, leaving them in control of Multan. Shuja Khan died a broken man. Taimur Shah would have to wait for several more years before he was able to wrest control of Multan back from the Sikhs again. Sardar Jayasinghe Kanhaiya and his missile were growing in strength and prestige, unaffected by the events in faraway Kabul and Multan. While he was readying for a trial of strength with Jassa Singh Ramgadhiya, a new problem presented itself. The Kanhaiya chief was in the market in Amritsar that bore his clan's name when he was accosted by a familiar figure. It was Sardar Ganda Singh Pangi who had become the undisputed leader of the Pangi missile after the death of his brother Chanda Singh a few years earlier. A meeting with the Pangis was always fraught with tension because Sardar Jaisingh Kanhiya knew that the Pangi chief suspected him of getting his brother assassinated when the Kanhiyas had clashed with the Pangis after getting involved in a conflict in Jammu. Even though Sardar Jaisingh Kanhaiya was surprised at being sought out by a man who hated him and talked behind his back of killing him, his mask of courtesy remained intact and he greeted the rival chief cheerfully. When Ganda Singh Pangi said that they needed to speak, he was invited to the Kanhaiya Bunga. Gurbak Singh was summoned as well to join the conversation. Sardar Ganda Singh Pangi quickly came to the point. Jaisingh Ji, I respectfully ask you to return Pathan Court to the Pangis. Pathan Court had belonged to my brother Sardar Chanda Singh and he had seen it fit to bestow it upon Nanda Singh. The Kanayas have no just claim on Pathan Court. The city of Pathan Court had indeed been given to one of the Pangi chiefs, Nanda Singh, by Chanda Singh. But on his passing, his widow decided to arrange a match between her daughter and Tara Singh, the brother of Hakikat Singh Kanhaiya. Pathan Court had been handed over to Tara Singh by his mother-in-law as part of her daughter's dowry. Inwardly gleeful at Ganda Singh Pangi's distress, the Kanhaiya patriarch answered gravely, 
I do not dispute what you say, Sardar Sahib. But this is Hakikat Singh's family matter. It would be most indelicate for me to intervene. Out of respect for you, I will broach it with Hakikat Singh. But please be aware that I am powerless. Of course, he had no intention of giving up Pathan Coat, which had become a prized Kanaya possession. Ganda Singh Pangi decided to act. He put together a large force and rode northeast, stopping at Batala, where the Ramgariyas, who had an axe to grind with the Kanayas, joined him. Fully aware of the movements of the Bhangi and Ramgariya forces, Sadar Jai Singh Kanaya sent Gurbaksh Singh to Pathankot, where Hakikat Singh Kanaya had already arrived to support his brother. Jassa Singh Aluwalia too threw in his lot with the Kanayas. An inconclusive battle was fought at Dinanagar, during which Ganda Singh Pangi took ill and died. There were unconfirmed rumours that he had been poisoned, but regardless of the cause of his death, the coalition collapsed and the Bhangi slunk away. The Kanhaya star had never shone so brightly and it seemed that they would soon eclipse all the other missiles in power territory and wealth. In October 1779, Tamur Shah left Kabul at the head of a large army intent on ending Sikh rule in Multan. He arrived in Peshawar and sent an envoy, Haji Ali, to Multan, demanding that the Sikhs submit to him. Upon learning that his envoy had been summarily executed, he sent Zangi Khan Durrani at the head of a force 18,000 strong to attack Multan, following at a somewhat leisurely pace himself. The Nawab of Bahawalpur brought 12,000 of his men and Muzaffar Khan joined him as well with all of his troops from his fortress in Shujabad. The siege of Multan began with Divan Singh Chachowalia holding out for more than a month. A Bhangi force consisting of 12,000 cavalry arrived from Lahore to relieve Divan Singh, but finding the city surrounded by a large force wheeled around and attacked Shujabad instead. Muzaffar Khan immediately gave chase and rushed back to defend Shujabad. The area was hit by a severe dust storm and then, in the confusion, Muzaffar Khan managed to capture a Sikh drummer. The hapless captive was commanded to play the beat that would summon his comrades, which he did on pain of death, leading the Bhangi forces to a terrible slaughter. When Divan Singh heard of the disaster, he decided to accept Tamur Shah's terms for peace and rode out of Multan unmolested with his men and possessions out of one gate while the triumphant Afghan king rode into the fort through another. In February 1780, after eight years of Sikh rule, Multan was taken back by the Afghans. It was yet another blow to the pride of the Pungi missile.
Royal Navy fleet, led by HMS Superb, under the command of Sir Edward Hughes, had just dealt a crushing blow to the fleet of Nawab Hader Ali of Mysore in the Battle of Mangalore. On board was a young gunner named George Thomas from Tipperary, Ireland. After the victory over Hader Ali, the fleet had multiple run-ins with the French Navy as the British and the French were jockeying for position in India just as they had been fighting one another in Europe, Africa and America. On board one of the French ships was a sergeant of marines named Pierre Coulier, known as Perron, who was destined to become the enemy and indeed the nemesis of the young Irish gunner. Coincidentally, both men deserted around the same time, intent on making their fortunes, something that would have been impossible if they had continued to serve in their humble positions in the Royal Navy or the French Navy. George Thomas made his way inland seeking employment as a gunner with various palayakarars or poligars, feudal administrators in the service of the kings and chiefs in southern India. After serving as a mercenary for a few years, Thomas briefly served the Nizam of Hyderabad as a gunner and then decided to travel north, eventually reaching Delhi. There, he entered the service of Joanna Nobilis Sombre, who is remembered in history as Begum Samru, the ruler of Sardhana and the widow of the late Walter Reinhardt Sombre, an adventurer from Luxembourg, who had served the reigning Mughal emperor Shah Alam. A brave and resourceful man, George Thomas, who had no knowledge of the Sikhs yet, was going to cross swords with them soon, for Sardhana, which lay between the Yamuna and the Satluj rivers, was in an area that was subject to constant raids by bands of Sikhs intent on plunder. strike a decisive blow in his war of attrition with Jassa Singh Ramgadiya. Jassa Singh Ramgadiya had crossed the Satluj and had found an ally in Raja Amar Singh of Patiala who had given him Hisar and Hansi as his Jagir or estate. Various Sikh chiefs had repeatedly plundered the territories between the Satluj and the Yamuna with impunity and Jassa Singh Ramgadiya had ventured into the territories of Zabita Khan Rohilla, plundering Kurja, Sikandra, and Merit, even reaching the outskirts of Delhi. This had prompted the hapless Mughal emperor Shah Alam to beg for clemency after Jassa Singh had plundered the Mughal arsenal and carried off four large cannon. Jassa Singh Ramgriya's brother Mali Singh still controlled Batala, and his brother Tara Singh was in possession of the wealthy town of Kalanor. Mali Singh, a cruel man and poor administrator, had alienated his subjects 
and when Gurbak Singh Kanhaiya appeared with an army at Batala, some of Mali Singh's subordinate chiefs were only too happy to throw open the gates of the fort to him. Hakikat Singh Kanhaiya attacked Kalanor and took the city after killing Tara Singh. Mali Singh was forced to flee across the Satluj to join his brother Jassa Singh Ramgadiya. The Ramgadiyas ended up losing all their territories both in the hills and in the plains until not a single village remained under their control as the Kanhaiyas went from strength to strength. Across the Satluj, Jassa Singh Ramgadiya was reduced to dire straits unable to pay his soldiers because of the loss of his revenue-producing territories. There's a story that when he was at Sarsa, a servant managed to drop a brass bucket in a well when he went to fetch water. A diver who was sent in to retrieve the bucket found four boxes of gold coins worth half a million rupees. The windfall was what enabled the embattled Jassa Singh Ramgadiya to pay his soldiers and recruit more warriors to his side as he plotted a return to the Batala area to claim his territories. West of Amritsar in Gujaramwala, his young protege was starting to come into his own. The young Mahasing Shukarchakya had shaken off the control that his mother, Mai Desa, had exercised over his fiefdom and was eager to expand his territory and influence. The areas west of Gujaramwala had become the domain of the Bhangis and the Shukarchakyas during the time of his father, Charat Singh. The fortunes of the Bhangis, like the Ramgariyas, had been on the decline. Their great leaders, Hari Singh, Chanda Singh, and Ganda Singh, were long gone, and Ganda Singh's son, Desu Singh, who was in command, was not a strong leader. The loss of Multan to Taimur Shah had further eroded the prestige of the Bhangis, and Maha Singh saw a clear opportunity. First, he started nibbling away at Bhangi territory, taking Isa Khel, Musa Khel, Sahiwal, and Bhera, and then attacking Pindi Bhattiya and Jhang and capturing Takhat Hazara. One of the important chiefs in the Bhangi missile was Gujar Singh, who had been a comrade of Charat Singh Shukarchakyas. His son, Sahib Singh Bhangi, was married to Maha Singh's sister. But despite being relatives, they were often at odds with one another. When Sahib Singh quarreled with his older brother Sukha Singh, Maha Singh came to his brother-in-law's aid and, according to some accounts, instigated him to attack his own brother. Sukha Singh was killed in the battle that followed, which enraged Gujar Singh Bhangi. But he decided to forgive his son when he expressed remorse. However, his anger at Mahasingh, who he deemed responsible for his older son's death, did not subside. 
Sardar Jaisingh Kanhaiya was much pleased when Maha Singh and his wife Raj Kaur arrived unexpectedly at the Kanhaiya Bunga. While Sada Kaur entertained the women in the party, the Kanhaiya patriarch huddled with his son Gurbak Singh and Maha Singh, who had come with a proposal under the guise of visiting the Sri Harmandar Sahib. The Chattas are getting troublesome, Chacha Ji, said Maha Singh. The Bhangis can't control them any more. I have word that Gulam Muhammad took the Bhangiyan di Top and has been bragging that he is going to get rid of the Kafirs once and for all. Mahasingh was referring to the legendary canon, the Zamzama, which had been owned by Amacha Abdali and had been used to great effect in the Battle of Panipat. The Chattas were a powerful tribe who, like the Sikhs, had profited from the decline of Mughal authority in the Punjab. They had fortified the towns of Manchar, Alipur and Rasulnagar and had successfully defended them against both the Mughals and the Afghans, prompting Amacha Abdali to confirm their territories in a strategic move to check rising Sikh power in the region. At the time of Charat Singh's passing, they had controlled more than a hundred villages around Vazirabad, only a few miles from the Shukarchakia stronghold at Gujaranwala. The chief of the Chattas at that time was Ghulam Muhammad, who was a bold man and a good administrator. Sardar Jaisingh Kanhaiya pondered Mahasingh's words carefully. I agree with you, Barkhurdar. Ghulam Muhammad needs to be brought to heel before other Muslim chiefs start to challenge the Khalsa Pant. But surely this is something that Gujar Singh Pangi needs to take care of. Are they not his subjects? You are right, Chachaji. But Sadar Gujar Singh will do nothing because the Chattas flatter him even as they rob him and he hopes that they will stay loyal to him. My brother-in-law Sardar Sahib Singh, however, will support me if I move against Ghulam Muhammad. If I have your support as well, I am confident that I can take Rasulnagar. The patriarch smiled. Sardar Charat Singh would have been proud of you, as am I. You have my support and my blessing. Bring Ghulam Muhammad back in chains or bring back his head. Maha Singh with a combined Shukarchakia and Kaniya force of 6,000 horse, left Gujaranwala to subdue the Chattas. Ghulam Muhammad Chattas' soldiers were mostly untrained peasants, and the Sikh cavalry made short work of them, forcing their leader to seek refuge behind the walls of Manchar, which was besieged by the Sikhs. Ghulam Muhammad Chatta held out for four weeks, but decided to surrender when an offer of clemency was made. Like many a Muslim chief who had been defeated in battle, he asked for safe passage to Mecca, which was promised. However, he was shot dead after he surrendered. Relations between the Shukarchakiyas and Pangis were further strained during the conflict with the Chattas. Chet Singh Pangi, the younger brother of Gujar Singh Pangi was captured and imprisoned by Maha Singh when he decided to come to the aid of his Chatta vassals. Even when Maha Singh's sister, married into the Pangi clan, came to Gujaranwala to plead for Chait Singh's release, Maha Singh refused to relent. 
Jatta resistance did not end with the death of Ghulam Muhammad. Sporadic fighting continued until Maha Singh overwhelmed the towns of Alipur and Rasulnagar as well, which were named Akalgar and Ramnagar by the Sikhs. The victory against the Chattas truly established the reputation of Mahasingh Shukarchakya. Several chiefs who had paid tribute to the Bhangis submitted to him, recognizing that his star was ascendant, even as the fortunes of the Bhangis were declining precipitously. The young chief had come into his own. On November 13th, 1780, as Mahasingh Shukarchakya was returning, triumphant from Rasulnagar, he was stopped by a breathless messenger from Gujranwala. His wife, Rajkor of Jeen, had delivered a healthy baby boy. He had been given the name Buddha Singh to honor an illustrious Shukarchakya ancestor, but Mahasingh decided to name his son Ranjit Singh to mark his great Sultan. Upon the stars I fix my gaze, incandescent is the sky, exhilaration fills the world, halcyon calm, contentment nigh. In the glow wash the earth, the heavens too they are aglow, the virtues of Punjab arise, freely does their fragrance flow. But hark the stars begin to hide, as starts to rise the golden sun, Dainty drops their color silver, cover each petal every one. In the home of Mahasingh, verily a flood of joy, a lion has been born today, Sultan incarnate is the boy. With these words the poet of Singh Azad imagines the boundless joy that the birth of a healthy son brought into the home of Sardar Mahasingh Shukarchakya. The boy in whose veins flowed the blood of Sardar Jarat Singh Shukarchakya and Raja Gajpat Singh of Jeen was destined for greatness.
episode, a rift that has far-reaching consequences, forms between two of the greatest houses of the Punjab. As the once mighty Mughal Empire, racked by rebellion, collapses completely, a plucky Maratha chief is appointed regent by the aging Emperor Shah Alam. In a desperate attempt to revive his fortunes, as Sikh chiefs repeatedly raid his shrinking dominion, the rise and fall of the Sikh empire is brought to you by All Mast Media, the creators of the Story of the Sikhs podcast and the Gramat Sangeet podcast. The podcast features original music by Indian classical guitar maestro Tom Sarkar. Tabla accompaniment is provided by Swarnapa Ghosh. The podcast is made possible by the Chardi Kala Foundation, Ishpreet Singh and Manpreet Kaur, and the Sani Family Foundation. It is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, The Night of the Restless Spirits, The Story of the Sikhs, and Kultar's Mind. To introduce myself briefly, I'm a Boston-based actor who was introduced to the Sikh world a few years ago when I toured extensively with Kultar's Mind, an immersive theatrical production that tells the story of the anti-Sikh violence of 1984. I am delighted fabulous tale. I'm host Ben Gutman. Thank you for joining us. have expressed great interest in learning about the references that were used while writing the episodes. At the end of each episode of The Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire, we will share a list of works that the particular episode is based on. References for this episode are Aftar Singh Azad, Mahabali, Shah Muhammad, War Shah Muhammad, also known as the Jangnama, Lepal Griffin, Rajas of the Punjab, Prem Singh Hoti Mardan, Khalsa Raj De Usariye, Surjit Singh Gandhi, Six in the 18th Century, Hutchinson and Vogel, History of the Punjab Hill States, Volume 1, Venushri and Puneet Sharma, Tira Sujanpur, An Abode of the Katoch Dynasty, Bhagat Singh, History of the Sikh Missiles, Gyani Gyan Singh, Tariq Sri Amritsar, Dalbir Singh, Rise, Growth and Fall of the Bhangi Missile, Lepel Griffin, the Punjab Chiefs, Muhammad Ali, Afghanistan, Jonathan Lee, Afghanistan, a history from 1260 to the present, Mon Stewart, Elphinstone, an account of the Kingdom of Kabul, Volume 1, Christine Noel Karimi, the Pearl in its Midst, Hariram Gupta, History of the Sikhs, the Sikh Commonwealth, J.D. Cunningham, History of the Sikhs, Ashik Muhammad Khan Durrani, The Last Phase of Muslim Rule in Multan, C.O. Gray and H.L.O. Garrett, European Adventurers of Northern India, Sohanlal Suri, Umdad Put Tariq, Daftar 2, Edward Lincoln, Punjab District Gazetteers, Gujarawala District, Bikramjit Hasrat, Life and Times of Ranjit Singh.